please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is presented by the Space Camp Explorers Club, a new way to support the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and Space Camp. Members of the Space Camp Explorers Club gain exclusive access to content, behind-the-scenes stories, and members-only swag. To learn more, visit SpaceCampExplorersClub.org. The SLS is the Space Launch System, which is NASA's new moon rocket, and it is the most powerful rocket in the world. And it will serve as the backbone of the Artemis Lunar Exploration Program. There is no other rocket capable of sending astronauts in the Orion to the moon on these Artemis missions. And so, you know, I sort of started playing in the aerospace world by restoring the original moon rocket. And now I'm part of the team that's building the next moon rocket, which is pretty romantic, no matter how you slice it. Marsha Lindstrom leads the strategic communications team for NASA's Space Launch System, the rocket that will take humans back to the moon and eventually to Mars. In the past, she has served as manager for the External Relations Office at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center and as director of operations for Space Camp. I'm Ryan Fariselli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I grew up in a very small town in Northeast Mississippi called Aberdeen. And it's one of those towns where you start asking people uh, to give them some, some points of reference. You know, it's between Tupelo and Columbus, Mississippi. And then if that doesn't do it, you stay three hours north of Jackson and you just start broadening the circle until somebody recognizes a city name. <laughs> it's a great little town. Uh, small town America with all the perks that come with that, and I mean that genuinely. I I toured the South going to college as a music major and uh, joined the Air Force actually afterwards with 171 and a half college credit hours, uh, but no degree. Um, <laughs> it wasn't that I didn't know what I wanted to do. It was that I didn't know what I didn't want to do. So I was trying everything. So yes. I uh, finally did graduate um, after the Air Force, but at Austin P. State University in Tennessee and have a master's there, but uh, joined the Air Force in the interim, which helped me finish. Sure. What did you do in the Air Force? I was a weather observer. On the ground, at a computer, or on a did you go on planes? What how what was that like? I was on the ground and at a computer, and uh, it's just exactly... Uh, what it seems, except, uh, you know, not uh, not the old joke about is the rock wet, then it's raining. Um, <laughs> but, you know, winds and conditions at the location where you are and uh, and helping the forecaster and doing briefings for pilots coming through at Air Force bases. Um, it was actually a pretty cool job because I was with combat units most of the time. 
I joined the Air Force and in my mind, you know, you're thinking you're, you know, it's, you're going to see the world and you fill out what's called a dream sheet. You probably heard of those. Yeah. And uh, mine had all overseas locations. <laughs> and my first duty assignment was Fort Campbell, Kentucky, five and a half hours away from Aberdeen. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it was a great, it was a great uh, assignment. I absolutely loved it. Supporting the 101st, of course. Y- your eventual major at college was public administration. So how did you go from uh, exploring the weather with the Air Force to settling on public administration? Well, it's kind of, it's a good story about uh, parents never giving up on a child. Uh, really it is. I, I started in college as a music major. Uh, I played a couple of instruments and I sang and I really had good scholarships because I played bassoon. Uh, Not many of us play that. So if you're decent, uh, that helps get you through college. Went to a junior college and then um, kept going through and finally got brave enough to admit I didn't really want to do that for a living. But as I mentioned, I wasn't quite sure, you know, what I was willing to give up for what. Right. Um, So changed to... Uh, commercial music, changed to broadcast journalism, uh, changed several times, and uh, finally realizing, you know, I didn't have great direction, uh, and compound that with my grades beat me home that year from Ole Miss, and my dad saw him first, and uh, I had really, you know, just had no direction and just kind of quit. I was just kind of living at Ole Miss at that point. And um, so he said, I want you to finish your education and I believe that you will, um, but you will need to do that yourself. Right. And so joined the Air Force, which he was very proud of, as was I. Um, And uh, when I did, I said, you know, I need a degree and help me understand which degree I can finish with the fastest. (laughs) <laughs> and it was history, English, sociology. You know, I had a lot to choose from, but really felt like I wanted to go into non uh, nonprofits and uh, government, though not where I am now. That wasn't my, was not my vision. Um, but so went in the direction of public administration. So kind of a, I'm I'm uh, very well rounded. <laughs> it's the business of of government and the business of nonprofit administration. Okay. And eventually you got your master's from Troy University? I did. I can't remember. I might have been at um, Herbert Field by that time in the Air Force, and I had finished my degree, and I really, uh, really wanted to be an officer. And so I just continued along that path, and, and Troy had a really phenomenal Uh, at that point, novel, remote learning, uh, online learning. uh, And and actually they had, you know, classes you could take remotely that they did a unique um, program with the the military to educate folks where they were. So Troy was, uh, you know, was a godsend, honestly, to be able to have that level of study uh, while you're in the military. Yeah, the plan was uh, to really wanted to be an officer. And the wonderful but unfortunate thing there is that my husband, I had met him in the Air Force. He was enlisted, uh, as was I, 
and, and we both were in the weather career field, which is a, you know, it's a high demand career field and uh, not a lot of folks in it. So they don't want you to leave that once they've invested in your training. Sure. And there you had, he was enlisted. I would have been an officer and we probably would have, they would have struggled to station us together. Right. So at that point, my husband had 14 years in. I did not. So I opted to um, to leave the Air Force and uh, and head into the as a, the government and nonprofit sector. I went to the city of Fort Walton Beach. Was my first job after my master's degree, and uh, worked in uh, municipal planning office, community development services there, and. We worked there and then of course we were transferred to uh, Colorado Springs, lived on the Air Force Academy and I worked at that time for the Better Business Bureau. We were there 11 whole months and then we moved to Shreveport and really at that time the nonprofit degree was very, very helpful. I worked for the American Heart Association in Shreveport uh, as a, a development specialist raising money. And then we moved back to Florida and I worked for the Cancer Society and went back to the city of Fort Walton Beach. And then uh, we thought that we were going to uh, help my father-in-law with his sports lighting business. And, but so we, so that didn't pan out, you know, and we had really put our house up for sale. We were ready to move and then nothing, you know, there's nothing you, so you're, really starting over and um, and my sister lived in Huntsville, Alabama and she said, it's a great town. Why don't y'all just come look? And literally we drove into town and I just looked over at the Rocket Center. I'd heard of it because I'm from Aberdeen, you know, it's not right. that far. And you see it and, right there uh, from right there from the, yeah. the highway as you enter enter the city. You can't miss it. That's exactly right. And I I just looked at it as we drove past and I said, well, that's where I'm going to work. <laughs> and <laughs> before we left town, we got a newspaper and lo and behold, the U.S. Space and Rocket Center was looking for a scholarship manager, which really was a fundraising position. Right. And a grant writer. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I did tell them that I would work for free until they decided I was worth paying. Wow. <laughs> they did not make me do that, but they reminded me of that lots of times. <laughs> <laughs> Embark on an exciting journey into the world of scuba in the heated underwater astronaut trainer. This ticketed activity helps you learn the skills it takes to be confident and safe underwater and is guided by trained dive instructors, leading you in a series of tasks. Advanced ticket purchase is encouraged to reserve your dive time. Visit rocketcenter.com for more information. Do you recall when you started working for them? That was 2002. And so you started working with them uh, for doing grant writing and raising scholarship funds and things like that. Uh, and eventually you worked your way up to where you were the director of operations for Space Camp. I was. and did that for 
uh, for about uh, six or seven years, like probably one of the longest tenures, I think. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but it was <laughs> uh, at the time, it was absolute Shangri-La, super team, super mission, uh, super leadership. It was just great. I loved it. When you were a kid, did you ever, uh, did you attend space camp or, you know, you ended up in the Air Force. Was that ever part of your childhood, you know, dreams? No, not, not any, <laughs> any part of it. I, I wanted to be a Jacques Cousteau. I wanted to be a marine biologist, as <laughs> probably most kids did. And I graduated in 1982, which was the year space camp was started. Right. So it I didn't, I think that uh, I had been to the museum as a kid. I appreciated the space program, but honestly, uh, one of the great shames of everybody else who worked at space camp was I was not a space nerd, a <laughs> space geek, nothing. I thought it was neat. Then I, I had to help raise money to restore the Saturn V and everything changed. I became a giant geek. <laughs> Let's talk about that then. As a grant writer, you know, I I was storming around the office when I first got there, and there was a Save America's Treasures grant on the shelf, just in a binder, and it was a $700,000 matching grant. And matching means you have to raise the other $700,000. Right. And we did not really have anything in place to do that. And you can default on those grants and it would have been a default on a federal grant. Um, and so we, we got to work and uh, it was a small group of folks that were the Space and Rocket Center Foundation. And we put together a, a committee. I will tell you one of the one of the greatest, most embarrassing moments in that saying something because I don't really get embarrassed very easily. I attended the Marshall Retirees Association at their invitation to tell them about that fundraising project. I schooled those people up on the Saturn V and the Apollo program. And if that doesn't ring with you why that's embarrassing, it was a room full of people who had literally built the Saturn V. <laughs> and instead of them tarring and feathering me and sending me out on a rail, they were charmed by my enthusiasm <laughs> <laughs> and they adopted me and they have shepherded me the rest uh, to this day. They continue to be some of my biggest supporters. And we ended up uh, restoring the rocket and housing the rocket and uh, building a museum around that rocket. Uh, we stood in the rain under um umbrellas the day we moved it from where it had rested for decades to go to its new building and the building wasn't finished and it was pouring down rain and the small group of us that had really been the pointy end of that sphere stood under umbrellas and cried like babies to see that thing move and to know it was going to happen except for what i'm doing now and i've done like i said i've been i've had a lot of good fortune but except for what i'm doing now the richest most rewarding experience meeting you know the the remainder of the german rocket team that was here the american uh, engineers, scientists, technicians, um, 
walking among history, you know, and hearing their stories. And I just absolutely fell in love with with Von Brown, with uh, the team, with the rocket and space. And the idea of human exploration uh, did just, I was, I became smitten. How long were you with the U.S. Space and Rocket Center? I think all total, and i it's weird that I can't remember exactly, but I think I was there right at 12 years, right at 12 years. One of the last things I did there, you know, I, I did the director of operations for space camp and, you know, and really had cared nothing about the shuttle program. There's no telling who, who will find this appalling, but, <laughs> you know, didn't care about the shuttle program because I was so enamored with Apollo. And then you start meeting the shuttle astronauts and you start understanding what the shuttle was and what it represented and what it offered. And then then you know you're enamored with that. And of course Space Camp really was so much, you know, that was the basis of it. So you learn so much. Um, and then I went back to do community and government relations and wrote a, uh, a NASA grant to build out the training floor of space camp. And in that process, uh, and I've really sort of become one of the spokespeople for the Rocket Center, I did a tour for the uh, NASA Exhibits Consortium. And there just happened to be an opportunity. And it, it was time, you know, I had sort of, it's time to pass the torch and and move along and, uh, and this opportunity at NASA presented itself as a contractor. And, you know, everybody at Space Camp wants to grow up and work at NASA. Sure. So, uh, you know, so when that when that became an opportunity and I went to work for a company called Media Fusion um, as an exhibits coordinator for the agency at the agency level. So it kind of, you know, it's uh, Story Musgrave, who's you probably know who Story is, uh, one of the amazing shuttle astronauts mm -hmm. uh he he once said when he was speaking at space camp that and i'm i'm really paraphrasing now but he made the point that you never forget what it was you did last time you know you take what you learned for me as a uh in city government and you take those skills that you learned there and you take them with you everywhere you go and you know, there was no plan. Uh, I, I had no plan. I, I still have no plan. <laughs> um, I, I have taken everything I've learned and it's it's led me to the next opportunity. And I guess the one the one thing that I that came with me into this world is a little bit of a lack of caution. So every time these opportunities presented themselves, you know, my my answer was always, "How hard could it be?" <laughs> That's and wonderful. I find out. I usually find out precisely <laughs> how hard it could be. <laughs> That's a great quality to have, though. Yes, and it serves well. I'm I'm 57, and it's still there. But uh, the what it does allow you is a freedom to try, you know, and you think, unless it takes some special physical skill that, you know, if, if other people can do it, um, surely you can, you know, like I said, how hard can it be? 
once you left Media Fusion, you actually went to NASA proper. Is that right? The organization that I supported was was called uh, the Office of Strategic Analysis and Communications at Marshall Space Flight Center, and is really uh, timing and all that good stuff. Uh, they had an opening in external relations for a uh, team lead for government and community relations. And there again, you know, there's all this uh, all this experience that I had had in a former life or <laughs> former lives that, you know, you're, I'm reading it and I called one of my mentors and I said, you know, is it arrogant to apply for a job as a, for a civil servant job that's a team lead when you've never even been at NASA and there are people there who've been there doing it for a long time. And his advice was, which was also brilliant, they're gonna pick somebody, it might as well be you. That door opened and and it was just off to the races. From there, I straight from a team lead to a acting manager to a manager. And uh, in that same external relations, which had protocol and uh, government community relations and um, and then uh, SLS, the Space Launch System Program, uh, they were having some changes and they came and asked me if I wanted to run their communications uh, program. And I, I tried to be, you know, coy and <laughs> I squealed and said yes. <laughs> <laughs> When you get a role like that, you know, you're brought in to, to lead the communications team for the SLS. I mean, what's the first thing you do? I would think that, that there's got to be an awful lot of onboarding that happens to learn the product, so oh, to speak. Absolutely. Uh, there was a pretty hot shot team in place of technical writers, uh, public outreach folks, graphics artists, and audiovisual team. And um, the first thing I did was come in and be pretty quiet, if you can imagine that. <laughs> uh, I had a lot to learn. I mean, you're talking about the most powerful rocket in the world, and suddenly I needed to know the elements of it and what they did and the acronyms and be able to share that, you know, 322 feet tall, 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust, 730,000 gallons of cryogenic fuel. I mean, and that's just nothing. You know, um, I know what a frangible joint is. I know that may sound silly to some people, but five years ago, I didn't. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it really is quite the ramp up. And um, fortunately, the engineers and uh, technical guys, uh, there were a lot of early Marsha adopters, as I call them, <laughs> who generously schooled me uh not only in you know i mean i'm no i'm no rocket scientist obviously but not just the uh engineering aspects of of and orbital mechanics and the stuff that we're doing but also program management and uh working with our industry partners and our sister programs with the orion and exploration ground systems it has been a, a it's been no small thing to get up to speed and run with this team of horses. We, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the SLS Green Run, which was a hot fire test of the uh, core stage, the main propulsion element really with the, the four RS-25 engines, which are the liquid fueled engines that will, you know, carry the rocket or propel the rocket 
after the first two and a half minutes when the boosters, solid rocket boosters come off, that whole core stage, 212 feet with those four engines, we fired that, uh, test fired it at Stennis Space Center. And we actually did it twice uh, back in February and March of last year. And that was to make sure that everything functioned together, everything flowed, that what, what kinds of leaks, what did we need to look for? It was to learn what the rocket was telling us. We really, we needed four minutes of that test. We've never done the, it the way we did it this time. So it's, we were using the actual flight hardware. So as my program manager, John Honeycutt says, the golden egg um, to do this test. And we're putting this incredible piece of machinery and engineering, and we're holding it down for eight and a half minutes and firing it for all it's worth with 512 a uh, thousand pounds of thrust out of each of those four engines. So 2.2 million pounds of thrust. And we're holding it down for eight and a half minutes to see what happens. <laughs> we check the thrust vector control. And we did it the first time and we got, and we just, just over a minute, uh, it saw a reading that it didn't like, that it had been a conservative set because we're testing the flight hardware. Right. Um, and it shut down. Very disappointing, it, you know, that's an all day test, but it wasn't disappointing to the engineers. It was just disappointing to those of us in the cheap seats. Um, so we had to do it again and we did that in March. And it's all day, you call the stations, you're there just about 12 hours. You feel, you fill up both tanks, uh, everything's monitored. And then, and then you, you know, the avionics and your flight software and you fire it and it went to the one minute mark and then the four minutes and then we actually got the eight and a half. But before we got there, at a critical moment in the timeline, um, we had an issue and I cannot remember what the issue was. At the time I knew very well. Uh, but a group of engineers, while all this was going on, you know, troubleshot the problem, came up with what needed to be done and came back in there and implemented it and kept us on track for that test. They did that in 45 minutes. It was absolutely awe-inspiring how it happened and the way they think. And I got in the car to go do the press briefing about it, to drive back over to where we were doing that. And I called my mom and I said, we do not all put our pants on the same way. <laughs> These guys are geniuses. It's just amazing. And it really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with being a, um, you know, uh, I guess in my right side brain, if I'm a little bit more artsy and a communicator and don't ask me to do public math, you know, I'm fine with where our skill sets are and different kinds of intelligence, but that to see that see something happen that would have been something I couldn't even imagine of trying to do and how they did it and how fast and staying on the timeline it and this the steely-eyed approach it's just incredible and I was in the the test room with the program managers that probably really let me see uh just the differences in us 
and how critical they all are to something that's this audacious and ambitious. And that probably is, that's probably something I'll never forget. And it's, it's hard to convey the feeling. Um, but, you know, I will say when I ran up on top of the building and those four engines were still firing and they fired for eight and a half minutes, a little tear out of one eye <laughs> and I was eight. <laughs> so I, I dried that up quickly and got back to business, but it was, it was pretty incredible. Pretty incredible. The rocket plus Orion, the spacecraft, is fully stacked uh, in the vertical assembly building at Kennedy. And we're going through its integrated testing, integrated vehicle testing. So making sure everything talks to each other. So we're in that process right now, but we still have a wet dress rehearsal, which will be, you know, filling those, you know, rolling it out to the pad, um, doing everything except launching it uh, to test out everything. Then it comes back into the VAB and, you know, you close out and get everything back ready to go and then you launch. So we, we have a, a good bit of runway just in what needs to be accomplished uh, to make sure that everything is right. And as the guys say, uh, we are uh, laser focused on that launch readiness time frame. It's launch period 18 is where we are, but we'll fly when we're ready, when the rocket's ready, when the teams, teams are ready. It's pretty exciting. <laughs> It's thrilling! <laughs> <laughs> the Space Launch System and the Artemis programs, it's a whole new era in, in exploration and in human exploration. And, it, and the moon is extremely important, but there's, you know, it's, it's just the beginning. And we're talking about expanding human presence deeper into the solar system, taking what we learn at the moon and uh, and going farther. And of course, Mars is there. And the opportunities that exist, not just for scientists, technologists, engineers, mathematicians, but people like us, communicators, to tell those stories. The, the world is open. I can't imagine being at the beginning again and what this would offer. Artemis is the beginning and the space launch system is a an unparalleled capability that will allow us to take more, farther, and faster. Did you attend space camp when you were young? Join the Space Camp Alumni Association, a group for graduates of all Space Camp programs to connect and support Space Camp from around the world. Your mission doesn't end at graduation. With Space Camp chapters located across the country and virtual networking opportunities, join the team to support the next generation of Space Camp trainees. Visit SpaceCampAlumni.com for more information and to join your local chapter today. they were to to offer to let you go up would you go in a new york minute <laughs> i but i don't want to go for a long duration mission i want to go up but i'd stay a month and come back <laughs> <laughs> yes i would so go and i would i would so go on this rocket 
I would say, you know, find those things that you do really well. Surround yourself with people who do other things really well. Teams are great because you don't have to be great at everything. But if you find what you do really well, you will shine like new money. You will love every minute of it and you will excel. And if that's in STEM, wonderful. If that's not in STEM or STEAM, that's also wonderful. But if you find that you can build on those strengths, you know, sure up your weaknesses, but don't, you know, but don't try to be something you're not. You've got natural skills and abilities. Maximize those. And then each new playing field you land on, find out what the rules are, learn how to play the game, and work really, really hard. Work as hard as you can at what you're doing right then, and the opportunities will come. And when they when when that door opens, run wide open through it. And when you fall flat on your face, get up. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna dare to explore this time. And I'm 